Okay, well, if you have your Bibles with you, let's go ahead and be turning to Luke chapter number 5. Luke chapter number 5 is where we're going to be at today. Um, we've been in a series for a while that I've entitled Refocus, and our desire is to push away all the junk that clouds our vision, all the things that get in the way, that get between us and Jesus, and to just get a clearer view of who Jesus is, who the Bible shows us that he is. We have so many ideas that's been thrust upon us by our own imaginations, by religion, by tradition, and our desire in this is just to strip it all away and look and see what the Bible says about him and let it speak for itself in a way. And so that's what we've been attempting to do as feebly as I know how. And so last week, what we saw was Jesus had returned to his hometown uh, came back to Nazareth after he had been down to uh, Jerusalem for the feast, came back through Samaria, talked to the woman at the well, and then he came into Cana and healed the, the nobleman's son, came back into Nazareth, and on the, the Sabbath day, he went into the temple, or excuse me, the synagogue, and he opened up the scriptures. He read a prophecy about himself and stood before it, well, Technically, he sat before them and proclaimed that the scripture was fulfilled in their ears. He sat before them and said this prophecy about the Messiah, I'm him. And so all of these people who had known Jesus for their entire lives, these people who had been well acquainted with who they thought that Jesus was, kind of had a bomb go off before them, if you will. Uh, they didn't expect Jesus, the hometown boy, to claim to be the son of God. And apparently they had missed uh, the virgin birth and all those kind of things, or just discounted it. But anyway, uh, they weren't ready for the truth on that day. And so they responded by trying to kill him. They tried to take him and throw him off a cliff, and he passed by through the midst of them, and they were unable to hurt him because his time was not yet, and that wasn't the way that God had intended for him to go. And so anyway, from this, we found that even those who have known of Jesus for a long time can still not truly know him. We found that people can be offended by him, even those who have known him or known of him for a long time. People who've been raised around Christianity, people who have had a Bible in their possession, people who have been even extremely religious can still be offended by Jesus. And so we looked at last week how to be offended by Jesus, and we saw that if you know of him without truly knowing him, you're going to be offended by him. If you reject what he offers, not just his salvation, but his guidance, his love, his companionship, his will, his direction, all of those things, if you reject that, then you are going to become offended by Jesus. If you reject what, or excuse me, if you seek after what he has withheld from you, if you see him as holding back something that you desire or that is good or that you want, you're going to be offended by him. Isn't that what happened to Eve in the Garden of Eden? God withheld one thing that offended her and she went after it and uh, in a way doomed all the human race. If you love what he hates, that's what the world does, right? calls evil good and good evil, if you love what he hates, you're probably going to get offended by Jesus. And if you hate what he loves, you're going to get offended by Jesus. 
And that includes all the people, the world, which he came and bled and died for, for God so loved the world. If you hate your fellow man, if you hate anyone on this human, or excuse me, on this world, uh, you're going to find times to be offended at God because he loves them. He hates the sin, but he loves them. And so all of these things, we find ways to be offended at Jesus. But today we're going to jump ahead a little bit. I'm actually going to skip over a couple of things. We've been going somewhat chronologically in this. And uh, I'm going to skip over a couple of things here in Luke chapter number four, because honestly, we can't look at every single one of Jesus' miracles. And I might become a little bit redundant in my preaching if I look at every single one of them. But anyway, at the end of Luke chapter four, uh, Jesus uh, casts the demon out of a man and then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know if there's any relation to the two of those, but I'll steer clear of that. Anyway, um, so he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then uh, we find ourselves in chapter number five. Um, as I said, we've been trying to go with this chronologically. So if we just kind of look back over what Jesus has done, he's began his ministry. He was baptized by John. He was testified of by God. He began drawing crowds. He turned water into wine, and he went to Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple. Uh, he did unrecorded miracles. He came back through Samaria. He healed the nobleman's son. He got thrown out of Nazareth. He cast out a demon. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And so he has done a lot, right? You could say his ministry was well underway. He has well started within his ministry. And then that brings us to the passage that we're at today that seems... Maybe a little bit out of place. This isn't where we would typically put this in Scripture chronologically. This isn't where this normally falls in our mind. And hopefully whenever I go through this today, hopefully whenever I bring this message, it'll all start to make sense about why it went the way that it did, why Jesus ordered things the way that he did. So Luke chapter number 5, verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him, to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Genesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake, but the fishermen were going out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. And when they had uh, done, had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their net break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were on the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished at all that and all that were with him at the draught of fishes which the Lord which they had taken, and so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought excuse me, and when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. 
Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these passages that we have, Lord, for this narrative that you give us, Lord, as you are dealing tenderly with your people, as you are calling and drawing people to yourself. Lord, we just ask you, Lord, to speak to us, Lord, to teach us through your word. God, and direct me as I uh, attempt to preach your word, Lord, that I would say the things that are needful and helpful and accurate, keep back anything that ought not to be said, and be with each person here that they would glean from it exactly that which they need. I ask you, Lord, that you be with this church, that we can be a light and be a witness uh, to this area, Lord. We ask you, Lord, that uh, we would draw nearer to you, that we would trust you more, that we would follow you closer, Lord. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. And all this I pray in Jesus' name. And amen. So as we look at this passage, we find that Peter was fishing. And as I said earlier, Peter had already come to Jesus. He was at the wedding with Jesus at Cana of Galilee. He went to Jerusalem and back with Jesus. He came back through Samaria to the woman at the well. And then he came back to Cana and Nazareth and all these places. He has been following Jesus for a while. So in our minds, we think that Jesus went, <laughs> called Peter, called the other disciples. They left everything that they were doing and immediately followed him, just like they were under a trance. It was like the Pied Piper. Jesus came through town. They were casting nets into the sea. Jesus says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they just, okay, and took off after the strange man that just came to town. Isn't that how this often goes and plays out in our minds? Somehow it's just a moment like that and everything has changed. But what we actually find in Scripture is that there is three different times that the Lord deals with Peter and draws Peter to himself. There are three different times, callings, if you will, in Peter's life, and it is a process by which God is dealing with Peter to bring him unto himself, a process by which he's trying to move him from simply believing on him to actually following him. And so the message that I want to preach today is the path from believing to following, okay? The path from believing to following, because here is a truth for each and every one of you before we even get started at this, is just because a person is born again, just because a person is saved, does not necessarily mean that they are following Christ. You can be born again. Salvation is free, right? But you have to make a choice and an effort to actually follow him. And this is what we're going to see is that Jesus is dealing with Peter and trying to bring him from just simply believing on him, just giving a mental or a spiritual assent to him and actually saying, okay, you are worthy of me leaving all and following you. There's a process that takes place. We find that Peter originally comes to Jesus whenever Andrew comes and says, we have found the Messiah. And he gets his brother, Peter, brings him to Jesus and spend some time with Jesus, and Jesus is teaching, he's preaching, Peter is interested, he is uh, thinking about the things, he's considering all these things, but he is not yet following, he's not yet a disciple, he is still looking into the matter, right? And so with that, he in a way becomes a student, in a way he begins to follow him afar off. We find him doing it later on, whenever Jesus is going to be crucified, Peter follows afar off, right? But anyway, that's a, another point. But anyway, we have Peter here is just entertaining the idea that Jesus may be the Messiah. And so he follows him as he's going to Cana. He's at the, the wedding with him, right? 
and he's observing what Jesus is doing. He's going down to Jerusalem. He's following him around whenever he was going to be going to Jerusalem anyway, right? Because all of the Jews were required to go down at the time of the feast to Jerusalem. And so they were going anyway. They may as well go with Jesus. They took a different route on the way back through Samaria. They said, well, we'll go ahead and follow him there. But then whenever they got back to Galilee, when they got back to their hometown, they said, okay, it's been nice making the trip with you, but we still have lives here. We still have to earn an income. We still have jobs. We still have fish to catch Jesus. So it's been good, but we've got to go back to work. And so he comes back to Capernaum. He goes back into his fishing boat, him and Peter and James and all of them. Yeah, Peter, James, and John. There you go. All of them are going out on the boats. They're fishing. They're discussing the things that they have seen and that they have heard. But yet they are not yet all out following him, right? And so in this time, we find that Jesus is going about preaching. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. He's drawing large multitudes to himself. And at this time, there is a multitude following Jesus. He comes down to the edge of the water, and he finds Peter and James and John fishing. In our minds, we think, Jesus is ministering, he's working, he's preaching, the disciples are with him. It's like a package deal, right? Jesus is over here busy doing what Jesus does, and Peter and the rest is over here doing what Peter and the rest of them do. So am I painting an accurate picture, an adequate picture here for you guys? And so he hasn't left all and followed Jesus yet. And so we find in Matthew and Mark both that there is another account given where Peter and Andrew are casting their nets into the water, and Jesus calls unto them and says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They abandon their nets, and they follow him. And he goes about preaching and teaching, and somewhere along the lines, they go back to fishing again. Because then we come to this passage that we're at today, and Peter has toiled all night. He has fished all night. He has came up empty-handed. He's going back to the things that he has always done, but they're not as fruitful as what they used to be. There's already a change that's taking place. So they toil all night. They catch nothing. They're washing their nets. They're mending their nets. And Jesus comes with a multitude and says, Hey, Peter, just the man I wanted to see. I want to borrow your boat. And he's probably thinking, Oh, good grief. I've been fishing all night. I just want to go home. I'm tired. Right? And he says, okay, Jesus, I'll go ahead. I'll let you use my boat for a pulpit. So he gets on the boat. He goes out. He's probably half asleep through the sermon because he's been fishing all night. And so he's listening. He's trying to stay awake. Jesus preaches, and I can't imagine him preaching and teaching for a short period of time. Okay? I figure it was sometime, and Peter is tired, and Jesus finally wraps it up. He sends the multitudes away, and Peter's like, okay, good. I can go home and go to sleep. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Peter, I want you to thrust out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught of fishes. And Peter is an expert fisherman, or used to be. And you don't fish in the deep. They would fish in the shallows and they would do it at night. And so he says, okay, Jesus, you're a preacher, you're a carpenter, you're not a fisherman. I know what I'm doing. And you're telling me to go contrary to everything I know about fishing and go out in the deep and let down the nets. But if it'll make you happy, I will let down 
a net. Partial obedience, right? He says, I will go and I will let down a net. So he goes out, he lets down a net, encloses so many fish that his boat is about to sink and the net is about to break. He calls the other disciples to come over and they fill both boats full that both boats are about to sink. Can you imagine what a catch of fish that was? This was like Peter winning the lottery because he was a fisherman. He was used to small hauls. This was a huge one. And so as their boats are about to sink, all these fish that are in their boats, Peter falls down before the Lord and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. He has changed his opinion of Jesus entirely. And Jesus calls him back to the thought that he'd given him before. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men before, right? Now he says, fear not from henceforth, thou shalt catch men, right? In verse number 11, it says, and when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. This was a final leaving. They had deserted everything. And at this point, he followed after Jesus, right? And so we see a process that takes place for him going from observing him, from following him at a distance, from him contemplating and looking at this, to Peter actually becoming a follower. Him making this journey from faith to following, okay? And as I said before, we can be saved without following, but I do believe that we should be making progress toward it. So what I want to look at today is Peter's journey from, from uh, just believing to actually following Jesus. And the first thing about this, just bringing it out simply from this process, the first thing, and I've already kind of looked at this, was that he was considering, okay? He was considering. There is a time of contemplation. When any believer gets saved, whenever they're born again, they, we, we would like to thrust upon them that you go straight from belief to following. It's like, okay, you got saved today. Now you're a dedicated disciple. You want to change everything about yourself. That's how we'd like for it to happen. Is that how it actually happens? No. And even myself, I've been guilty of this from time to time, saying that we can uh, trust him with our eternity, but we can't trust him with the here and now. But there's a reason for that, right? There is a process that takes place. There is a learning. There is a consideration. We are new to this thing. We have trusted in him to save our souls. But can we trust him with our lives? Can we look to him to lead and guide us in our day-to-day -day walk in the things that we are doing here and now? And as we walk with him, as we learn about him, as we take in the information that is given to us in scripture, as we hear the testimonies of others who have believed, as we see God working in our own life, he is proving to us that he is trustworthy, that we can rely on him, we can depend on him with all we are and with all we have. The Bible says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we always just look at that and apply it to salvation. And that is true. But you don't just need faith to be saved. You need faith to follow. And so as we're looking at the word of God, as we are looking at all these examples of people who did forsake all and follow Jesus, we see how it turned out for them. And it's building our faith and it's telling us that we can follow him. And so Peter here was... Uh, looking at Jesus maybe a little bit skeptically. He knew that if he was to truly follow Jesus, that it was going to change his life. He didn't know what extent yet. But whenever Jesus turned the water into wine, it proved that he had power over the natural world. 
whenever he uh, whenever he confronted the religious establishment down in Jerusalem, it proved that he wasn't just some religious hack coming through like the rest of them. Whenever he reached out to the Samaritans, he proved that his ministry and his vision was far greater than the Jews ever had in mind. Whenever he healed the nobleman's son, it proved that he had power over the physical world. Whenever he uh, was cast out of Nazareth, it proved that he wasn't always going to be popular, right? Whenever he healed the, or whenever he cast the demon out, it showed that he had power over the spiritual realm. Whenever he healed Peter's mother-in-law, it showed that he cared about Peter's family. And whenever he gave him this catch of fish, he showed Peter that he was capable of taking care of all of his physical needs. Peter being a fisherman, this was a picture of his entire livelihood. He may have came back from Jerusalem saying, okay, I've got to get back to work because this following Jesus has got expensive. I need to pay bills. I need to pay off debts. Maybe he had debts that he needed to, needed to pay on. And he says, I can't follow Jesus because look at all of my responsibilities. I have a family to take care of. Jesus says, I'll take care of your family. I have all of these needs that need met. I can take care of your needs. He gave him these fish, and Peter was able to pay off any debts that he had. He was able to have money to go forward. He was able to follow after Jesus because Jesus proved, I can take care of you. But all along, Jesus was patient with Peter as Peter was taking all of this in. We like to have the idea, once again, that Peter is some sort of a superhero. Jesus says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And Peter says, okay, good enough, here I go. No, Peter didn't do that in any area of his life. And that's not part of the human experience. None of us do that. And if you do, you usually end up in a mess afterward. And then you're trying to figure out how to recover from it, right? Any of y'all just jump into things? Okay, I don't. I wait. I've got to like be pushed a little bit. Anyway, so with all of these things, Jesus is being patient with him. But he was believing and he was slowly progressing to the place where he could let Jesus take the lead, right? As I've already said, there's an expectation today that from faith to following is supposed to be simultaneous, as if there's something magical that happens. As soon as you get saved, you just, boom, I'm all in. And most people tend to just kind of dip their toes in a little bit. They're still feeling it out. They're still trying to wait until the ground forms beneath their feet before they take the step. And so you don't get saved and just abandon all and follow him, not generally. It rarely happens that way. But Jesus invites us to take his yoke upon us and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly. He is saying, come and put me to the test. Come and try me. Come and see what I'm all about. Prove me. Test me. Because he can take it. We find that Paul, throughout his epistles, spent much of his time encouraging believers to make this step, encouraging them to go from simply believing, from simply being saved, to actually following and putting all that they had into Jesus, okay, being fully committed to him. And so after we're saved, we start learning about Jesus, we start seeing him work in our lives and others' lives, and we begin to wonder, can I trust him to take the lead in my life? And as we are observing, hopefully it brings us to the place where we decide he can be trusted. So the second thing we see, not only was he considering, he was called. 
Jesus called him specifically. Jesus called him and said, I have a plan for you. I have a path for you. I have a purpose for you. And I want you to follow after me. I want you to let me be in charge. I want you to let me lead in your life. This was Jesus calling for Peter. And Peter kept going back to fishing. Peter kept wanting to do what he was familiar with. He kept insisting that he be in charge, but he had to come to the place where he trusted Jesus enough to say, thy will, not mine, be done. And so by the time it got to that point, fishing had already lost its appeal. He was stinking it up out there on the water, wasn't he? He wasn't even successful at it anymore. And so he was washing his nets. He was done. And after, after that long night of failure, Jesus brought him out there. And one last push, he said, Peter, I know what's holding you back. I know you're questioning whether you can trust me or not, whether I can take care of you. Let me just make this final. Let me just show you. I've got something for you to do. We've got to push you over this hump. Look, I can take care of you, Peter. And he gives him this catch of fish. And it was at that moment he decided that life was better with Jesus in it. He says, I've been out here toiling all night and caught nothing. Jesus sends me out here and immediately provides everything that I need. I think I can just put my lot in with him. I think I'm better off just to let him be the one that's calling the shots. And so he decides to finally give in and to commit to the call that he has been given. And I believe that God has a plan and a calling for each and every one of us. It doesn't mean that we are to forsake all. It doesn't mean that we are to quit our jobs and go to a monastery or go into some kind of full-time Christian service. But God has a plan, a desire, a will for our lives, how he would have us to live. He has a path that he would have us to trod. He knows what is best for us, but he is challenging us to allow him to take control. And we have to come to this place where we are trusting him, where we are willing to commit our way unto him and allow his word and his spirit to decide our direction. And it's hard for us because we want to be in control. But if we consider him, if we consider who he is, if we consider what he has done and what he's capable of, who do you think is going to do a better job in guiding your life in determining your direction? Do you think that your track record is going to be better than his? And so Jesus called him. Peter committed. The third thing that we find here is he was counting the cost. So he was considering. He was being called. He was counting the cost. And with all the responsibilities that he had and all the knowledge of his life and how life worked, he had all of these concerns. And that keeps many people from falling, just like it did Peter. We look at it and say, okay, if I allow God to be in charge of my life, if I agree with him and say God's ways are best, his word is true, I want his will for my life, what is it going to cost me? Right? Jesus told some that wanted to follow him, he said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He said, we're going to abandon all, we're going to follow you. And he says, are you sure about that? Because it's not necessarily going to be easy. Because remember I said earlier, salvation is free, right? No cost. Salvation is free. But discipleship has a cost. 
There is a price to pay for following him. He tells them, if you'll be my disciple, to pick up your cross and follow after me. That's to be a disciple, not to be a Christian. You want to be saved? That's free. He paid for it on the cross. But if you want to follow after him, there is a cost. There are some things that you may miss out on. There are some things that you may lose. In Luke chapter 14, he tells a parable of a builder counting the cost. He said, who's going to go and start a construction project without first making sure he has enough money to finish the project? What king is going to go out to war without first analyzing his soldiers and his army and making sure he's able to win the battle? And he says, if you're going to follow after me, you need to know ahead of time that there's going to be a cost. This isn't to dissuade people. This isn't for us to focus and say, oh, it's too costly. It's for us to know ahead of time that there is a cost in following Jesus. Because here's the problem that arises. People take off following him gung-ho and say, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus to the end of this earth. And then difficulties arise. Cost starts accruing. And they say, hold on for a minute. I didn't realize this was going to happen. I think I'm done. We have examples of this in Scripture. Uh, look at John Mark, for instance. John Mark said, okay, Paul, I'm going to follow you. I want to be part of your missionary team. We're going to go out. We're going to turn the world upside down with the gospel. And then the road started getting difficult. Then there started to be a cost. And what did Mark do? He turned back. He went away. Paul was a little bit bitter toward him. He didn't want him to follow anymore. He says, okay, I'm not giving him a second chance, right? Because he realized that following Jesus could be costly. We find others throughout the New Testament that whenever the costs started coming in, they decided they weren't going to follow. Uh, we find Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. What happened? Demas was following the was following the Lord, was engaging in ministry. He was doing all of these things, but whenever he noticed there was a cost behind it, he says, "Nah, I think I'll just be a believer on the sidelines. I think I'm done actually following." He was done because of the cost that was coming upon him, right? And so Paul, our Peter was counting the cost here in following. He says, do I, do I really want to take that risk? Do I really want to uh, do away with these things? And as I said, this isn't to focus on the cost, but it's to be aware that there are going to be some things that we will lose or we miss out on when we follow Jesus, so that when they come, we don't forsake, so we don't abandon him. He tells us up front, you ever get caught up in one of those things where you don't read the fine print ahead of time, and next thing you know, you're committed to something and you don't want it? Right? I, I wasn't expecting that. I didn't know this was going to happen. Jesus says, let me just tell you ahead of time so this isn't a surprise. Full disclosure, you follow me, there is going to be some costs. And so you may lose some things. You can't follow your heart if you're following Jesus, right? You can't chase your dreams if you're following Jesus. There's some things that you're going to lose. There's some things that's going to cost you. People that you used to run with may run the other way when you're following Jesus. There may be some things that you used to like and some things that you used to desire that maybe it's best for you to stay away from now. There may be friends and family that don't understand you anymore. You may have to say no to a few things. Friends and family, as I said, they may forsake you. There are some costs with following Jesus. You may be considered weird. You may be considered strange. You may not fit in at the job site. 
You may have a different perspective, a different point of view. It may make you unpopular. It may even make you unliked. But these are costs of following Jesus. But you know, I find that not only do you miss out on some of these things, you're also going to miss out on a lot of heartaches. You're going to miss out on some bad relationships. You're going to miss out on some brokenness. You're going to miss out on some baggage. You're going to miss out on some of the mistakes that other people are still reeling from and suffering. You're going to miss out on a world of heartache because the Lord is going to follow you through it or around it. Bible says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Because guess what? Even whenever you are going through those things, he is still protecting and guiding you. And so guess what? Some of the things that you're going to miss out on are a cost. But instead, he is going to be repaying us. He is going to be giving us benefits. And so the last thing that I see here is that following Jesus doesn't just come with a cost. It comes with a compensation. See, the cost is an investment. And there is a return on the investment. There is a return on the investment. And so Jesus proved that he could take care of all of Peter's earthly needs, but he had much more in mind for Peter than that. If we focus on the things that it might cost us, it's going to discourage us. But whenever we look at him and we learn of him and we realize who he is and what his desire for us is, the cost fades away into an investment, into a great compensation that is coming our way. Turn, if you will, over to Mark chapter number 10. This is Jesus dealing with Peter once again. Mark chapter number 10, verse number 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. Right? He says, I've given it all away. I've thrown it away. I have left all. It has cost me to follow you. And he's asking him, what am I going to receive in return? And it says, and Jesus answered and said, verily, I say unto you, there is no man that have left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and last shall be first. So what is he telling Peter here? Peter says, we've been following you for a while. We have given up quite a bit. We have had a lot of costs that we have incurred. There are people who hate us. We are now on the wanted list, okay? There are family and friends that think we are nuts. We are traveling long times at a, at a stretch here. We are staying away from our families. We are giving up all of these different things for you. What am I going to get in return? And Jesus says, I have a generous compensation plan. I'm going to take care of you because there is not a thing that you give up that you are not going to be rewarded for. There's not a single cost that you incur that he is not going to repay in a great measure above that. The Bible says that he is able to give to us, uh, I'm not even going to quote the scripture, I'm going to mess it up. But anyway, he is able to compensate us. So as Christians, it would be more than what we deserve if we just miss hell and we get into heaven, right? 
if he just saved my soul and I didn't have to go to hell and I got to go to heaven whenever I died, that would be more than what I deserve. But the Lord also blesses and rewards us in this life as we follow him. He leads us around to heartaches and trials and troubles. He keeps with us and comforts us through the ones that we do go through. He helps us to avoid the pitfalls and the traps and the snares that Satan sets before us. He gives us opportunities to serve and to to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, the Bible says. And we do all of this as we're following him and he repays us for our service. We're not slave laborers. We're not coming to this and he's trying to get out of us all that he can. He says, anything that you do in my name, I am going to reward you for it, both now and in eternity. There is a compensation. So we start looking at the cost and say, but if I follow Jesus, people won't like me. If you don't follow Jesus, there's still going to be people that don't like you. Is that news to you, right? If I follow Jesus, what if it causes this to happen or that to happen? If you follow Jesus, do you know what Jesus can cause to happen? Do you not think that he can take care of you? And so all of the things that we do in his name, when we are following him, when we're allowing him to direct our paths and to set our sails, he is going to take care of us. He is going to reward us. He's going to provide for us. He is a good God and a wonderful Savior. And so for each and every person in here, doesn't matter where you're at on your Christian journey. doesn't matter where you're at with Jesus. I'll tell you, look to him. Consider him. See who he is through Scripture. See what he has done in the lives of others. See what he has done in your life and ask yourself, can I trust him? If you can trust him, why not Make a commitment. Why not turn your life over to him and say, God, your will, not mine, be done. Your word is the one that I want to follow. If your word says it's right, it's right. If your word says it's wrong, it's wrong. And I want your Holy Spirit to be leading me, guiding me, directing me. I want you to establish my goings, and we follow after him. You can be advised. You can know there's going to be some things that it will cost you. There'll be some things that you lose. But what you gain is going to be so much greater than anything that you ever lose. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, he's patient. He gives you time to consider. We're not guaranteed how much time we have. And I say, don't put it off for too long. But he invites you, consider him. Look to him. Check into it a little bit. I never do push anyone. I never do uh, prod anyone along. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit deals with you. And as you hear his word, as you see the truth of his word, consider him. Can you trust him with your soul? And if you come to the place, you realize I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I need Jesus Christ shed blood for me to forgive my sins and save my soul. He's calling you to commit. Put your faith and trust in him. And then learn of him. Begin following him, walking with him, and see what he'll do in your life. If you're a Christian here today and you've been saved, but you've been following afar off, you've been contemplating, you've been saying, can I really give my entire life over to him? 
Can I trust him? Can I let him be in charge? I really like being in charge. I like calling the shots. I want to determine my direction. I want to determine where I'm going. Honestly, are you doing real good with that? You think Jesus would do better? I challenge you. Look to the Lord. Let him be in control. Let him be your focus. Let him be your guide. And allow him to be not just your savior, but allow him to be your shepherd. Allow him be the one who is leading you in and out to find pasture. Because I'll tell you, with Peter, he made this decision to follow Jesus. And if he would have fished the rest of his life, if he would have worked the rest of his life right there in Capernaum, living out his life the way that he had always done it, it couldn't even begin to touch the wonderful things and the great things that he saw God do in his life and through him. And he was even one day martyred for his faith. He ended up being killed for his faith. And I still don't believe he had any regrets because as soon as he closed his eyes in death, he was ushered into the presence of God and his angels, at which time he saw all the treasures that was laid up before him, all of the souls that were born again because of his ministry, because of the things that he had done, all the treasures and all the crowns that God had laid up there. And he looked around and he said, it was definitely worth it to follow Jesus. He wouldn't have went back to fishing. He tried multiple times. But after the end of it, he says, I'm glad I followed him. And I'll tell you, if you follow him, you won't regret it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings once again. Lord, we thank you for this passage, Lord. And it's just... Uh, done so much in my heart and my mind just seeing how you dealt gently with Peter and how it wasn't just a lightning flash moment, but it was a process in him growing in his love and his trust and his understanding to where he was finally able to make that commitment and to leave all and to follow you. I pray, Lord, that if there's one here today that is in this place where they're considering, where they're thinking about whether or not they can trust you with their eternal soul, I pray that today would be that day they would surrender to your calling, they would trust you as their Savior. Lord, if there's Christians in here today that's been uh, sitting in the driver's seat of their own life, I pray that today would be the day they'd ab abdicate that seat and that they would let you be in charge, Lord, that they would seek your will and not their own. And Lord, help us to grow, help us to see you in this scripture, help us, Lord, to uh, lift you up in our lives, Lord, and Lord, that we would just uh, we would just glorify you and love you as you deserve. Lord, we thank you so much for all you do. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Name it. Name it.